0: And it's a warm welcome to the latest Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is David Cushnan, Head of Content here at Leaders. With me, as always, John Porch, Lead Writer at the Leaders Performance Institute. John, hello. Hello, David. How are you doing? I'm all right. A little bit bummed up, but I'm excited because it's Ryder Cup week and we're recording just a couple of days before the 2018 edition gets underway in Paris. And there's a golfing flavour to the archive session we're about to hear.
1: Absolutely, we're going back to the New York 2015 Sport Business Summit. Usually we obviously deal with performance, but on that day, Paul McGinley, who was Team Europe's Ryder Cup captain in 2014, they won, of course, and he spoke at length to a business audience alongside Mike Ford, who was moderating that
0: session. And McGinley, of course, was on the board that appointed Thomas Bjorn as the captain of the European team this time round. But what else was he talking about? on stage back in 2015?
1: Well he was appointed two years before the competition actually took place so that gave him a lot of time to prepare. So he was looking at data around the players, around the different performances, around the different courses, just to see who could fit with who and that enabled him to make decisions come the Ryder Cup weekend that year. And also he talked about managing players who compete as individuals with narrow focuses for most of the time. Uh, Obviously a lot of
0: egos involved but he managed to massage them and get everyone fighting on the same team. He certainly did. Sounds like a super session. We'll hear it imminently. Uh, Just before that, your usual reminder to check out leadersinsport.com and click on performance for all the latest content that we're producing on a regular basis. uh, Perspectives, best practice from across the high performance world. And you'll get all the details there of our upcoming Leaders Performance Summit In London, which is coming up in November, and we have an exciting lineup is taking shape. So uh, have a look, www.leadersinsport.com for all your high-performance needs. John, shall we uh, head back in time and hear from Paul McGinley? Let's crack on.
1: Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Thanks for braving the snow this morning. We all had different journeys getting in. So I'd like to, I'd like to start uh, this very exciting session, just having some time with Paul. we would probably do him a great disservice by only giving him 35 minutes. But uh, for the Europeans in the, in the room, this is gonna be a great sort of 35 minutes. For the American audience, just kind of suck it up, guys, really. It's a really good story, so just try and take some lessons from it. But we have got some great business lessons, and I think that's the reasons Paul's been very generous with his time to come over to it. So I wanna go into the, the really main part of why we're here. morning which is to talk about the Ryder Cup and there's so many phenomenal stories for everyone who watched it and certainly for someone like yourself as a captain. Well, you came in as uh, the captain and you had a two-year preparation to come into the tournament in Glen Eagle so I want to start with a a really cutting question was when you were given the job as captain how did you see it go what was in your mind and what do you think you could offer that that situation?
2: well, first of all, thank you for being It's nice everybody turning out on a, on a, on a very snowy day in, in uh, New York to come today, so nice to be here. Um, my first, uh, there's a number of challenges I faced when, when, when I became captain. Um, and just to give a little bit of a background for those who might not know. In, in Europe, uh, you become captain by, you're voted in by your peers. Um, so, my peers on, on, on the tour in Europe voted me in uh, to represent them as captain of the European team. So, it's a very it's a humble place to be when your peers vote you in such a prestigious position. Um, we'd won seven of the previous nine before I became captain, so that brought us own challenges as well too. Um, but i have been very fortunate that I'd, I'd been a player on three occasions, I'd been a vice-captain twice, so to a large extent I'd, I'd ridden shotgun on, on a lot of that success. I'd seen what worked, I'd seen what hadn't worked, I'd seen the dynamic inside the ropes as a player, outside the ropes as a vice captain. Um, And for me, we'd won seven out of nine. Um, The two that we hadn't won, I wasn't involved in. Um, So I'd only seen positive results. Um, And for me, it was an evolution of that template. I called it a template. I'd seen what worked and uh, I wanted to evolve that template, make it better, not necessarily change it, uh, make it better and, and roll it out again. So when you talk about this evolution and not revolution, what, what was one or two things?
1: Because when you, when you take over, you talked about it uh, in the press and, and even recently again that you talked about for the first time in a long time, Europe were very strong. Number one player in, in Rory McIlroy going into a European-led event uh, with that pressure. So the, the, the resistance sometimes is to, is to break it up and start and do something else. What was the one or two things that you said to stop, take a, take a deep breath? These are the things that were, what were one or two examples that you can give us? Well, the
2: attitude of the players uh, and the attitude of the challenge that was ahead of us was most important. Um, the, first thing, the first thing I did more than anything was establish what the challenges were going to be in Glen Eagles. And the dynamic had changed a little bit. Um, it always generally been little Europe against the might of America. Uh, and we'd, we'd punched above our weight in that regard in terms of winning. But now we were actually, we had the best players in the world in our team. We would six of the top eight in the world on our team. We were playing at home. There was a lot of expectation going to be on our shoulders, which you never had before. Mm-hmm. Um, so dealing with that was a big thing and dealing with the psyche of the players was going to be a big challenge for me. And I identified that very early as, as something that we needed to get on top of if we we're going to be successful.
1: So so you go into this situation, you go into Glen Eagles, you've had two years preparation, you're now the favourites, you've got the best team to pick for. So in many ways, you can only fail. So when you talk about the challenges that you faced, you know, you, your own personal captain versus captain dynamic, your own media versus media dynamic, when you think about the key challenges, what were the things that you identified of a raft of things that you could focus on as a leader. What were the one or two things that you said? If I nail
2: these one or two things, this will make a real big difference. Well, dealing with the psyche of the players was important and, and embracing the fact that we were favorites. I'm being proud of the fact, you know, these guys had worked very hard to become top players in the world. Embrace that, don't be afraid of it. Um, embrace the fact that we're playing at home with 55,000 people on us. You know, sometimes that can be a double-edged sword too where uh, playing at home and the crowd can get restless in soccer terms if you don't score early or, or if things don't go the way they should go and, and being ready for that and psychologically preparing the players for the different stages that we will go. So being favourites, the expectations on our shoulders, um, they were probably the two biggest challenges. Um, and uh, as a result, I mean, Alex Ferguson was a guy that I brought in um, as, as a soundboard for me um, for that reason um, I'm, not a, I'm not a Man United fan I'm a West Ham fan So, um, <laughs> but I always loved the way that Man United played uh, I, I called it a smile on their face I loved that wave after wave of attack that they used to play particularly at Old Trafford most of the games that Alex Ferguson was in charge of Man United they were favourites to win there was expectation on the shoulders um, so I felt that he would be a great guy to, to use for me as a soundboard um, in terms of dealing with you know top athletes in the world who are making a lot of money um, and uh, he would be a great soundboard for me to kind of bridge that, um, bridge a lot of those challenges Um, and he was and and I learned a lot from him. So for for
1: probably one of the first times in your own certainly playing career now in the sort of leadership career, you were a genuine leader of a group of guys that were looking up to you for strategy, leadership, tactics, a vision about what you did. So reaching out to someone like Sir Alex Ferguson, the ex-iconic coach of Manchester United, to come into that. So what was the, when you think about the Ryder Cup captaincy, what's unique and historically so difficult about it?
2: Well, what's so difficult about the Ryder Cup, more so than any other positions in leadership, in whether it be business or whether it be sport, is that you never get the players together before the event so, for a two year period for me as captain, I had no ba- no, no training bases i 'd no even not even dinner together. Where I could get all twelve of them in the same room um, and I, I kind of stayed clear of it as well too I mean mm. when the The only time the guys were together was when they were playing major championships, and i didn 't want to disturb the preparation. In, 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 in trying to win major championships by trying to get them all together with a view to what was going to happen in September. I, I always had a view that the best way the players could prepare for, for September was to individually um, prepare as best they can in, 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 their, in each individual week. So that was the big challenge. Um, so you, as captain, you arrive in, in Glen Eagles on a Monday morning and all of a sudden, 12 of these top players arrive on your doorstep and you have to formulate everything. But my communication went back uh, quite deep over the two year period, it was regular communication. It started out with 50 players because we didn't know what the team was going to be and that whittled down obviously to 12. So that was, uh, was kind of what I worked towards. And, and the other challenge, big challenge as Ryder Cup captain is um, golf is a very individual sport. Um, and over the two year period of 104 weeks, 103 weeks, these guys are playing with a very self-centered um, mindset. Um, it's all about them um, to a large extent. It has to be, you know, a lot of it is self-interest and, and, and their own team around them. So that was a very different dynamic then when you have to bring them all together and now they have to be a team. So I, I recognized that um, and, and one of the things that I, that I did, one of, one of the big things I did was bring them in as individuals. Uh, and not impose too much team element and team structure on them. Mm. So, so,
1: you, so they all come together, they've, they've been doing great success. Rory comes in, number one player in the world. First day, first morning, first session, what do you say to him? You know, these guys have got all the expectations, they come with the expectation to win. You're the captain, you've been the first captain in the radical, what is the first meeting, what does it look like? Because one of the things that you talked a lot about in in the lead-up and certainly after was this different approach, which was the use of data, which is traditionally not being used in in golf at this level. So you've come with new ideas, you've
2: not had time to bring it to him. How did you actually sell it to him? Well, it started over a two-year window, as I say, uh, Mike. So I had regular contact with the players. Um, It was normally short, it was brief, um, but I knew the vision that, that I wanted. I knew the, the template that was in place. Um, I knew the attitude I wanted the players with. I knew that smile on the face, the way Man United played. I wanted to play in the front foot. I wanted to enjoy what they're doing. Um, and also when it came down closer to the Ryder Cup and I was putting a strategy together and pairings together. So I'd communicated with that, with each individual player. Um, but I had, I, w- what I really tried to achieve was complete clarity to each player. So there was only two out of the 12 players who knew the big picture in terms of what we were going to do, where we were going. And I felt those two individuals had to be told because that's their mindset. I know, them, I know all the players well, and their mindset is the, the more they know about this, it easier for it to go focused. Whereas most of the other 10 players, all they needed to know was this, What everybody else was doing was irrelevant. Uh, I would only only make their focus go that way if I told them too much. So communication and the build-up to the Ryder Cup was very important. So when we got to Glen Eagles, to a large extent, we hit the ground running. Everybody had clarity what their role was. They played the practice rounds with this clarity in mind for their individual role within that team. Um, And together, collectively, we're all coming together and obviously we're trying to win the Ryder Cup. So, so
1: the vision is clear, the strategy is clear, the tactics is clear, then, then you've got the kind of talent management piece, which to bring it in the context of this audience, you know, people who are leading businesses, CMOs, CFOs, CEOs of major sports franchises and across the world. There's the strategy, vision, financial piece, which is, is very relevant, but the real piece is how do you manage the people? And in this group of guys that you had that were very successful, independently, very wealthy, you've got young rookies, you've got experienced pros, how did you actually create that sort of team spirit, even though individually you're trying to, how did you
2: engender that? And was there any different to what the US team were doing? Well, yeah, I think there was a big difference from, the, from, the, from how America have gone about Ryder Cops in the past. They may change now on the back of the task force that's been in place. Um, But we had a quote that you went into the team room, um, and to a large extent, this quote, it was written in huge letters about three meters, um, it was three meters by two meters, and it was a big quote written as you walked into the team room. Um, And it was, the best teamwork comes from those individuals um, who are working individually towards one goal in unison. So basically, like I say, I wanted them to remain individuals. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to bring in the dynamic that makes Rory McIlroy the best in the world is his self-centered approach to his game and what he's doing. Uh, and I always f- found, um, from my experience of being involved in the Ryder Cups, is that when you bring a guy in who's used to being and trained to be single-minded and, and very much self-centered, if you bring him into that team room and then for one week out of every two years, you ask him... To be, to be friends with him and to talk to him and to, to play a different role. I always felt you lose that dynamic of what got him there in the first place. Mm-hmm. You lose his strengths. Mm-hmm. So I wanted him to come in and remain individuals. And, and I did that by um, having a conversation with every player to say, if you were playing a major, if the Ryder Cup was a major championship and you were playing in an individual role, who would be there with you? you know, and they, most of them, um, well, all of them would say, you know, generally nowadays they travel with a coach they, some of them travel with a mind coach, some of them, um, they all travel with a, with a physio, a trainer, um, and then others would have a masseuse as well too. Normally the trainer and the masseuse would be the same. So w- what I would do to say Rory McIlroy, for example, would let Rory come in with his team. Mm-hmm. And then I'd let them remain all within the environment of Europe. So as a result, the team became very large, but it made Rory very secure in where he was because he had his own people around him as well as his teammates. Mm -hmm. And because you take away the structure and you let them be individuals and let them be comfortable uh, with that dynamic, what happens is they end up bonding even more because they're coming from a very secure place mentally uh, and they're very comfortable with the people around them. So what happens is they bond even more with their teammates. And I think it's one of the... um, most important reasons why I felt our spirit was so good at the right of
1: So allowing them to be individuals, allowing them to continue to to operate in the way that's been successful. In, in all great individual performance, in all great team performance, the, the the attention to detail, the marginal gains that we hear about all the time across the world of sport are very, 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 uh, very, very detailed and very relevant. And I think in, in your case, you've got some incredible stories about what you did from a data side that was very
2: new to the players. Could you share that with us? Well, it was new to the players um, Data can be a, a double-edged sword as well, too. Um, you know, when I'm trying to keep the players with a very clear, concise role that they have in the team, um, the way I, I viewed the data was it was for me and the vice-captains to share, and obviously the guys who are collecting the data, they shared it with us. And I had that amount of data in my head and facts and figures, um, but I didn't want to impose that on each individual player. Mm -hmm. I took the data I needed for their role in the team and shared that with them. To give a little example, um, the first thing I did when I became captain was do a complete statistical analysis on the examination paper, which was Glen Eagle's. Um, I always viewed our opponent, not so much as America, our opponent was the golf course and our strategies and getting it right. Um, so fortunately, the last 10 years, we've had a golf tournament on the golf course where we're going to play the Ryder Cup in Glen Eagles in Scotland. So I did a full statistical analysis, so I got it done uh, on, on the last 10 years of the Johnny Walker Championship that was played there. Um, and I, I, out of that came a number of key areas. I wanted to see a correlation. What was the correlation on this particular golf course um, between the guys who play well on it, Um, and and what did they do particularly well to to play that golf course? And and every examination paper is different. Sometimes it can be the par three, sometimes it can be the par five, sometimes it can be the par fours, sometimes it can be the guy who hits the most greens in regulation, or sometimes it can be the guy who who puts the best. I wanted to see what what was that examination paper and what was coming out of that data. And to give you one little example, uh, well, it's not a little example, quite a big example, Uh, one of the big correlations was playing par fives uh, on, on that golf course big correlation between the guys who did well over the 10 year period and, and how they played the par fives that week. So as a result, over the two year period, I obviously watched par five scoring average um, from all the players around the world. And that helped me make decisions when it came to the picks. But then you take, I took it on another level, then when uh, you look at the Ryder Cup and when it comes to, the, to alternate shot, um, and this was one of our, our big wins and probably the main reason why we won the Ryder Cup was the afternoon sessions are alternate shot. Um, so in looking at the pairings for the alternate shot, uh, of the four par fives in the golf course, which we know is a big correlation, three of them were even numbers and also a drivable par four was also an even number. So I took the view that because that is the case, we have a number of bigger hitters in our team and a number of shorter hitters. So what I was doing was pairing the bigger hitter with the shorter hitter, Gray McDowell, Victor de Buisson, Lee Westwood, Jamie Donaldson, to give you two examples, uh, Rory, Sergio. So... The bigger hitters in, in each of those pairings I, I, I just mentioned um, would play the even numbers because that's where the par fives were, three out of the four and the drivable par four. And then the straighter guy and the guy who was particularly good with the putter um, would, would, would play the second shots into those holes. So that's where the strategy came. And, and we, won, uh, we won one afternoon session 4-0 and we won the, uh, the other afternoon session 3-1. So 7-1 overall in alternate shot. And, and I really think it was because it was data-based is one of the reasons why we, we got that. We got our pairing spot on. So you've gone
1: from, this is the, this is the challenge that we face, it's a great insight, it's, it's not the US team, it's actually the... It's actually the uh, the venue and the green, and it's focusing on that more than the competition, so you, you move out of there, you, you go into the players, I'm a player who's never done this, how, how actually did you, because I think it's important from a big data space, how did you actually tactically sell that to the players, who
2: I've never seen this before, wow, this is, I just go out and go out in the green and do what I do, how did you actually sell it? Well, it's easy to sell when you have the data there, and um, as I say, I was very conscious. It's easy I- to sell when you've won. Well, right at the time as well, too, the the, the data was so clear mm. and the, the relevance between par five scoring average um, and playing well in the Johnny Walkers was so clear. So I was very conscious of not overburdening them with too much information, too much data. Um, so I had all the data. So each individual, um, I took the data, put it in a little bundle of how I wanted to present it to that player and explain to them. Um, i give you just a little example. Um, Graham, Graham McDowell, my communication with Graham, Graham is a big player, he's been, um, he's won the US Open Championship before, he's a big player, a man for the big occasion, who's always performed in Ryder Cups. Um, and the role I saw for Graham was to play with Victor de Buisson, but only in the afternoon sessions. I didn't want to play him in the foursomes, I had another plan for the foursomes. Um, so my communication with Graham, who's intelligent guy, when I sat down and explained to him, I said, look, Graham, I got good news and bad news. The bad news is you're only playing three out of five. So he was always disappointed. He said, well, why? So then I showed him the data. Um, I showed him data on Victor de Buisson, who I wanted him to pair with. Uh, I would paired them at European Tour events during the year when they were playing without them knowing, because I wanted to make sure that the dynamic was going to be all right. Um, when I showed him the data for Victor and how far he hit the ball and how straight he was with the driver, showed him the data on the par fives. Um, showed him where his strengths were in terms of his putting and, and, and uh, second shots into a par fives, where they would nail it. Um, I said, that's the bad news. and uh, The good news is, just like Bradley Wiggins would in, in the Tour de France, or Chris Froome in the, in the Tour de France, um, there's a time and a place when you move to the front. And your time and place to move to the front will be on the Sunday morning in the singles where you're going to be playing number one, leading the team out. So. And I want you to be fresh. And it's one of the reasons why you're only playing once the first two days. I want you to be really fresh for that role because it's obviously a very important one.
1: So the data, the information becomes an insight. And then the foresight piece is then how you sell it to the
2: players in this particular... Communication moment. with the players is so key. And every conversation was on a one-to-one basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody was told their information that pertained to them and their role within the team. So complete clarity and understanding of where, what their role was and what they had to do. Um, gives them freedom um, to go and, and, and play their role and not be overburned, overburdened with trying to be too much of a team because it's, it's easy to get involved in other people's business. And you do it with good intentions. You, you know, you want to help a guy who's, who may be struggling or whatever the case may be, but it's important that I kept the players there. If a guy was struggling, that was a management's reason, management um, role to, to get involved and, and, and to deal with any issues that he may have. Um, so and the vice captains and myself were, were involved with that.
1: There were so many iconic pictures just behind us when we came onto the, onto the stage, yeah. it's gone now, but there was one or two in particular that when you saw them, you, you had a, a, a rice smile in on yourself. One yeah, I don't know if we that. can
2: get that one up, the one that, that we had earlier, because there's a, there's a great story. Yeah, that, I, I just saw it as I was sitting down there. That top right-hand, right-hand uh, picture there, you can see, see we're all pointing up. This, that's an incredible story. Um, as I say, I was using Alex Ferguson as a soundboard for me. Um, Nobody knew I was communicating with him. The players didn't know. I met him probably six times over the, over the, the two year period. Um, i go to Manchester, we sit down, we'd have a nice lunch and a, a glass of wine and I'd have all my notes and I was explaining and the team was evolving and I was, um, I was sh- telling him my ideas and using him as a sounding board. Um, and as we got close to the Ryder Cup, the story I just gave on Graham McDowell, I exactly had that conversation with him. I said, look, this is how I see Graham's role, bomb, bomb, bomb. This is how I'm going to communicate it to him. And I gave the example of the Tour de France um, of, of, you know, he's, there's a time and a place when he, he'll move to the front and I'm going to move him. And he says, you know, that reminds me of the story of the, of the geese, the Canadian geese, who, who fly transatlantic uh, in the V shape, you know, and then they quack, quack. The guy at the front gets tired and he moves to the back. Um, so he was explaining that and saying that he'd use that in a football term. So when he came in to, um, speak to the players on the Tuesday, um, what was great about him was we prepared very, it it was very clear. One of the big lessons I learned from him was continuity of message was very important to the players. We talked about clarity and keeping them tunnel vision and where they were coming from. Um, And I wanted to keep them there and not give them too much information. And he was very aware, uh, and he's the one who gave me the idea to say, look, if I'm going to speak to the players, you need to tell me what you want me to say to them. Um, I can give in football stories, but it's very important that there's continuity in the message that they're hearing. I brought that to a whole different level with videos and, and images around the team room. And one of the images, one of the thing was um, about Graham, to be a time and a place, everybody will have a different role in the team, be a time and a place when some guys will move to the, move to the front. And this is about winning with 12 players um, and everybody will have a different role at certain stages during the week. And he told a story of the geese. And this resonated with a lot of the players. And it was mentioned a couple of times um, um, around the team room about the geese. So, anyway, roll on till Sunday. We win the Ryder Cup. It's great. We're, we're all so excited. And we're getting this iconic picture taken here where the captain holds the cup and all the players put their hand around to hold it. And true as I'm sitting here, just there's maybe 500 photographers here taking a picture. And right behind them, there was the clubhouse for Glen Eagles. And just as we're, they're about to snap, um, Rory McElroy you can see there right in the middle, said, look, look, above the clubhouse. And through as I'm sitting here, this perfect formation of geese in a (laughs) V flew right over the clubhouse. I mean, it was unbelievable. It makes me have chills even now thinking about it. Sir Alex Ferguson wasn't on the front, was he? No. (laughs) No. Okay, good. He was behind with a whip. (laughs) Yeah, fantastic. But uh, it was uh, was quite incredible. Uh, And that's why we're all laughing in it. And it's a very, um, it's a picture that I've sent to all of the players um, with a message. And it kind of summed up everything we did as a team. And I mean, there you go. There's the value in that picture there of what Alex, and Alex Ferguson brought to the team. Brilliant. We are, I'm going to open the, the
1: questions up to the floor in a second. I think one last question, I think you're very unique and very privileged for leaders to have you here on stage. I think one of the, the lessons that I would be interested to know, and particularly the audience of high-achieving business people, you know, what lessons did you learn as an individual as you went through this process about yourself, about leadership, about managing people? What was, how did you come
2: out of all this? Because you took a team yeah. to the pinnacle, but how did you come out of it? Um, the biggest lesson I learned, um, well, not so much learned, but I evolved and, and I, made it, um, I made it my new uno, my number one thing more than anything else. And irrelevant of result, this is what I was going to do. And that was act with complete honesty, transparency and integrity with everything that I did Ryder Cup related. Mm-hmm. That, was my, that was my mission. Um, to bring and elevate um, one of the most competitive sporting arenas in the world in the Ryder Cup. Um, but to do it with a smile on our face and to do it that everybody was included. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't just focusing on, on our best players, for example. Everybody, I felt, was pushed exactly the same from me as captain. So integrity and transparency and honesty, particularly with the players, um, was was my number one goal Okay, wonderful
1: we uh, we've got people chomping at the bit i'm sure and i can see through these lights uh who would like to ask a question to paul if you could put your hand up and we wait for a microphone i know so it's still in a small group uh we've got this gentleman right at the front and then we'll go with this gentleman there after mm. so one and two we'll take a few questions <clears throat> Great teamwork here, passing the mic down. Well done, you've had an impact already.
0: (laughs) Don't don't really need a mic, I could just ask. But anyway... um, Sorry, Sue, can you stand up? Yeah, sure. So, John Sullins from Tough Mudder. Um, You might have spotted I'm English. So, uh, first of all, thank you for the enormously pleasurable weekend you gave uh, quite a few people in uh, in Europe. Outstanding. Thank Um, you. Just an interesting thought. You've uh, set the bar pretty high, the team, but your approach and uh, the way you... Put such professionalism into this. Uh, how do you think your success is going to uh, get on and are you sharing the lessons with Darren?
2: Oh yeah, no doubt, of course. Um, I haven't spoke to Darren yet, he's been traveling since he was appointed. He's an ex-captain, he follows me now um, and of course, um, but Darren's been privy. Darren has played five Ryder Cups, he's been a vice-captain twice, um, so he's very, he's privy to a lot of that. As I say, he's been riding shotgun as well too and a lot of that success um so he'll have his own ideas as well too but I think what's important is of course if Darren wants to sit down and have a chat with me of course I'm happy to help in any way but but I also think it's very it's very important for a leader um and for a captain to be their own man you know I mentioned integrity and honesty and we all view things in a different way and um it's very important that Darren is open and honest with himself and does what he believes to be um and as much as the Ryder Cup last year went as well as it did and so many people said nice things about what we did if he tries to copy me for me that would be a mistake you need to have your own identity as a captain and you need to have integrity in what you're doing and belief in what you're doing and if you have that, that's easy to relate then to the players but if you're trying to copy somebody else you don't really become authentic so my advice to him would be very much be his own man There's a number of ways of winning. It doesn't have to be just the way I did. I mean, Colin Montgomery, the two where I was vice-captain, Colin Montgomery and and Jose Maria Lazabal were the two previous captains, and I was a vice-captain to both of those, and they captained in very, very different ways than I did, yet both were successful. So there's no one way, and it's important that Darren remains true to himself and captains what he believes uh, to be the best for him and his personality and his beliefs.
0: I suspect you'd just say that, but uh, thanks, and congratulations again. Sure. Hi, uh, John Beers with Agence France Press. I just wondered how you saw this weekend's uh, Davis Cup tie with the, between the U.S. and Britain unfolding, and whether you had had any contact or help with the British side.
2: With the Davis Cup? Yeah. No, I haven't actually. No, I mean, I'm, I'm a keen follower of tennis, um, but uh, no, I haven't had any. I've, I've I've worked a little bit with the Irish rugby team. Anybody who's here from the uh, who are having a great bit of success and. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting watching them evolve. Um, not, not work with them, but I've been, I, I know Joe Smith very well and, and uh, I'm very interested to see how they're going about it. And I think they're ranked two in the world at the moment. Ireland, a little country like Ireland, we, we certainly punch above our weight. But I have a great, have a great interest in all sports and, and I learn so much from so many different people in sports and, and I love to, to, to get down to the, to the psyche of it more than anything else. So I'm watching observing all the time and I'm in business as well too. We're going to take two more questions because we are pressed for time. This gentleman here first, and then I'll take this gentleman
1: here, please. Uh, Dan D'Alella with the Hoteling Group. Um, I know obviously golf is a very unique platform in sports, but do you feel as though the focus
0: of individu- individualism, working towards a team goal, is something that is transferable into the workplace and into companies in today's generation?
2: That's a really good question and, and I do believe it's one of, one of my real strong beliefs is that I think a lot of people make the mistake in the best interests and with the best integrity of being trying to be too much of a team and then you lose your clarity and your dynamic that you are contributing. As I say, that quote was very important and r- keeping remaining individual and very focused on what you do for me is massive because if you, if you don't and if you look at too broad and you try to be too much of a team player you're losing your focus individually. So remaining an individual is very key, as long as everybody's pulling in the same direction towards one one overall goal in unison, as the quote says. So um, I think it's a, a very important dynamic in everything. Um, yes, of course, we all want to be part of a team, but don't forget being that individual as well too, and what you're going to bring to the table. Thank you. Thank you. One last question here,
0: please. Um, Brett Poston with Dimensional Innovations. Uh, for the American perspective, it was crushing (laughs) but that's okay um one of the things you said was that you didn't view the americans as the opponent but the but the golf course as the Uh opponent and i wonder as uh the u.s now has just this tremendous um burden of not winning do you think that not focusing on the other team but focusing on the course is part of a I, to me, it sounds like a secret weapon, almost, mm-hmm. in that it takes the focus off of the other player yeah. and the emotion associated with that. I mean, is that what drove that idea?
2: Um, it, it, to a large extent, it was. Um, to a large extent, it was about creating a team spirit. And to a large extent, it was watching and, and knowing myself. The success that I ha- I've had as an individual so many times... I was—I'd crossed the finish line before I realized I'd won. Um, and, and that was really because I was so caught up in the process and not the result. Uh, and for me, it's a key, key, key thing, not just in sport, but in business as well, too, is to get so absorbed in the process. That's when you perform at your best. If you're chasing the result and it's all about the result and you keep reminding yourself of the result, that's not a good place to be. Um, listen to Jack Nicholas as well, too, and, and having talked to him uh, lucky to, to met him a number of times in, in my career and how he went about his business. Jack Nicklaus wasn't playing against the other players. He was playing the golf course. He always said he figured out a score he needed to shoot and he was playing to shoot that score um, on the golf course. And whatever the other players did, if they happened to play better and beat him, he said i would be the first to shake their hand. But his challenge was preparing himself, putting a strategy in place to shoot a golf score that he believes to be realistic around that golf course that's, that's going to give him the best chance of winning. So process against result, I know it's a, it's a big theme in, in, in life indeed, not just in, in business and in sport, um, but I'm very much bought into that. And, and we were all about the process. I can't remember once, and I made, consciously made an effort in all my team meetings, never, ever, ever to refer to winning the Ryder Cup. It was all about us putting out our um, strategy and us coming together as a team, everybody working individually, but collectively together in unison. Um, The result would happen if we got this right, and that's what our focus was as a team. That's why it was so important that the players would complete clarity as to what they were doing, what their role was, and to be absorbed in that. Forget about what happens in terms of the result. You just be absorbed in what you're doing and what your role is. And obviously, some guys had bigger roles than others, but still, being absorbed in your role was going to be very important. Great. I think
1: that's a, a, a very fitting finish. And I will say, Paul's talked a lot about process and leadership. His preparation for this event, along with David, his agent, and EY has been incredible and a great testimony to, uh, to what they've done. So I'd like you to put your hands together and thank you very thank much for Paul for coming today. You.